You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, 14 Lectures, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 7, given in Berlin on the 9th of January, 1913, entitled Jakob Burma. At that point in modern cultural development, when we see the dawning of the New World Conception, at that time when we have to record the great deeds of Kepler and of Galileo, and when Giordano Bruno, in a certain sense, outlines the great problem of the modern conception of the world, we encounter the solitary thinker who is the subject of today's lecture, the simple shoemaker of Gerlitz, Jakob Burma. He struggled with the highest problems of existence in a way that can deeply occupy our thinking and feeling to this day, and will probably continue to occupy people's thinking and feeling for a long time to come. This Jakob Burma was a quite distinctive figure who strove and struggled in isolation while the various streams in cultural life were otherwise uniting to form a great comprehensive tableau. In a certain sense, one might say that the solitary struggle of Jakob Burma is from a certain point of view almost as interesting as the totality of the various viewpoints that we encounter at that time. And then we see how, quite remarkably, what Jakob Burma still found in his own century, in his inner solitude, achieved the greatest conceivable dissemination, bearing in mind that one is dealing here with a matter of deep spiritual significance. We see from what his opponents have said how far his influence extended once only a few decades had elapsed after his death. Jakob Burma has again and again been the object of appreciation and admiring or dismissive and ridiculing attention. And when he, we observe the extent of his following and the forces that opposed him, we have the impression that both the adherents and the opponents knew that they were dealing with something quite remarkable. Such a phenomenon is particularly remarkable to those who want to understand every personality who appears in the cultural life of humanity on the basis of the immediate circumstances of his time and his surroundings. We see, for example, how the attempt is made to understand Goethe by bringing together all sorts of details, however insignificant, about his life in the belief that by assembling these details one will be able to arrive at something that can explain some aspect of his intellectual life. It is not really possible to gain much that can lead to an understanding of Jakob Burma in this way, for the external influences are difficult to establish through outward means. It is even harder to understand how he developed out of the intellectual life of his time. Many people have, therefore, come to think that in the case of Jakob Burma we are dealing with a kind of spiritual meteor. Everything that appears here Everything that this personality had to give seems suddenly to have emerged and come to manifestation 
out of the depths of his very particular soul. Others have then tried to explain that many of the things that Jacob Burma said and many of the ways that he expressed his ideas in words and phrases bear a similarity to the formula of alchemists or other philosophical schools of thought that were still active at his time. However, anyone who looks more closely at Jacob Burma's whole mentality will find that such a procedure has hardly any more value than if, in the case of a significant personality, who is, after all, obliged to use language as a means of expression, one were to examine his language. For when Jacob Burma avails himself of alchemical formula, this is only the way in which he clothed his thoughts linguistically. But what makes so immense an impression on anyone who tries to understand him is an originality that one finds only in the very greatest minds. There are, on the other hand, certain aspects that are not entirely in tune with modern thinking, but which, for someone who is capable of entering into such things, nevertheless shed light on how Jacob Burma was able to raise himself to his lofty spiritual level. In order to form a connection with his life, insofar as it is relevant here, we need to mention a few biographical facts. Jakob Burma was the son of very poor parents and came from Alt-Seidenberg near Görlitz. He was born in 1575. In his early years, he had to tend the cattle with the other village boys. He therefore grew up in complete poverty. And since, in such an environment, there are no particular means of education, we will find it understandable that Jakob Burma could barely read as a boy of twelve or thirteen and was able to write only with difficulty. But he had another experience during his childhood which a faithful biographer heard him relate from his own mouth. This experience will first be recounted. As already noted, it is not one of those things that a modern consciousness would readily find intelligible. Once when Jakob Burma was looking after the cows with other boys from the village, he separated himself from the other boys, climbed a moderately high mountain near his home, the Landkrona, and in the broad light of day claimed to have seen something like a gateway into the mountain. He went inside and found there a vessel, a kind of vat, filled with pure gold. This made such an impression of awe on his soul that he ran away and retained only the memory of this extraordinary experience. One can, to be sure, speak of a dream dreamt in a waking state, and one may grant those who are satisfied with such an explanation the right to uphold it. But what really matters is not whether one calls such an event a dream, in quotes, or gives it another name, but what it releases in the soul of the person who dreams it, what kind of effect it has on the soul. From the way that Jakob Burma subsequently related this event to his friend, we see that it had become deeply engraved on his mind, that it had liberated significant forces within his soul, so that it had the highest psychological significance for him. Let us, therefore, grant rationalists the right to interpret such an experience, which was in any event a significant happening in Jakob Verma's soul, 
in the way that they also want to explain the event of Christ's appearance to Paul before Damascus. However, an explanation of this kind, which resorts to such interpretations, must also admit that a work of the significance as that of Paul, which is so intimately connected with Christianity, had its origin in a dream, in quotes. When he had this experience, the boy, Jacob Burma, felt something like a profound stirring of soul forces, not otherwise active in his soul. It was a case of an inner liberation of forces lying deeply within him. This testifies to the fact that we are dealing here with a person who could descend more deeply into his soul life than many thousands of others. Mention should also be made of an event of a very similar nature, of which it must again be said that it continued to live in Yako Burma's memory in such a way that the radiance and significance of this event pervaded his entire life, insofar as this life was of an inward nature. In his fourteenth year, Yako Burma was apprenticed to a shoemaker and often had, as it were, to be on watch in his master's shop. He was not allowed to sell anything. On one occasion, and again this story is related directly from the mouth of his faithful biographer, Abraham von Frankenberg, a person who immediately made a curious impression on Jakob Burma, came into the shop and wanted to buy shoes. Because, however, the boy was forbidden to sell shoes, he explained to this stranger. The latter offered him a high price, and it then came about that the shoes were sold. But then the following sequence of events unfolded, which Jakob Burma remembered for the rest of his life. When the stranger had left, and a short while had elapsed, Jakob Burma heard someone calling his name, Jakob, Jakob, and when he went out, the stranger came up to him even more curiously than before. He had a sun-like, radiant quality in his eyes, and spoke words to him that sounded most distinctive. Jakob, Jakob, you are still only little, but you will become someone entirely different, who will provoke great astonishment in the world. Nevertheless, remain humble before your God and diligently read the Bible. You will have to endure much persecution, but be strong, for your God loves you and will be merciful to you. Jakob Burma regarded such an event as far more significant than any other outwardly biographical events. And his biographer goes on to relate how Jakob Burma told him that in 1593 he felt for seven days as though withdrawn from his physical body and as though living in an entirely different world. He felt as though reborn in his soul. Thus we are dealing here with what might be called a lastingly abnormal state of soul. But Jakob Burma also experienced this, in quotes, rebirth of his, more or less as something that he understood as being able to take place within a human soul. He did not thereby become a dreamer or a false idealist, nor did he become arrogant, but continued to practice his craft as a shoemaker in all humility and, one might say, in all sobriety. Even what he experienced in 1593, the state of being transported to another world, remained to him a phenomenon of which he said to himself, quote, You have had a glimpse of a joyous kingdom, a realm of spiritual reality, but that is a thing of the past. Close quote. And he carried on pursuing his craft in a completely matter-of-fact way. 
1600 and 1610, this experience of rebirth was repeated. He then began to record what he had experienced in his states of exaltation, since he believed that this was required of him. Thus, in 1612, he wrote his first work, titled Die Morgenrote im Aufgange, in English, Dawn in the Ascendant, later entitled Aurora. He said of it that he did not write it with his ordinary ego, but that it was given to him word for word, that he was living within a being that, in contrast to his ordinary ego, was of an all-encompassing nature, extended throughout the world, and immersed itself within it. However, the revelations did not do him much good. When some people became aware of what he had to say and what he had written, the manuscript of Aurora was copied and circulated in a small way. The consequence was that Gregorius Richter, the deacon of Gerlitz, where in the meantime Jakob Burma had established himself as a shoemaker, inveighed against him from the pulpit and not only condemned his work, but managed to have him summoned before the council of the town of Gerlitz. I shall now merely repeat the words that his biographer has made known to us. He relates that the verdict of the council was that Jakob Burma must be forbidden to write anything further, for only those who are academicians were permitted to write, and Jakob Burma was not an academician but an idiot and should therefore refrain from writing. Thus Jakob Burma was branded as an idiot, and since he was on the whole a good-natured person, who because of the simplicity of his nature could not wholly think that people would consign him to damnation entirely without reason, he did indeed decide not to write anything further in the immediate future. But the time then came when he could no longer do otherwise, and between 1620 and 1624, the year of his death, he quickly wrote a large number of books, such as, for example, titled Das Buch vom Beschaulichen Leben, the Book of the Contemplative Life, and titled Die Signatura Rerum oder der Geburt und Beziehung alle Wesen, or Erklärung über das erste Buch Mose, Signatura Rerum, or an explanation of the Book of Genesis. But the number of his works is considerable, and some readers may find them baffling. Many have said that Jakob Burma is forever repeating himself, it cannot be denied that he does say certain things over and over again. But if someone concludes that it is possible to know everything about Jakob Burma, if one knows a few of his works, on the grounds that he is always repeating himself, it must, while acknowledging that such people are making a valid point, be said that whoever contents himself with having read one book by Jakob Burma and has no appetite to read any of the others, does not understand much about him. Whereas, anyone who takes the trouble to read his other works will, in spite of all the repetitions, not rest until he has read every single one. If we turn from such a characterization of Jakob Burma's nature to trying to enter into his thought life, into his spiritual nature, it must be said that a person of today who lives only in a modern cultural environment will find much that is incomprehensible not only in the content of his books, but also in the whole manner of their presentation. Everything seems at first to be completely chaotic. To be sure, one gradually gets used to it, 
But then for many people there continues to be something that is a difficult nut to crack, namely that he comes up with strange definitions of words that are totally unintelligible to the modern mind. Thus, in his explanation of the world, he is always using words like salt, in quotes, mercury, in quotes, and sulfur, in quotes. And when he wants to discuss what sol and fur signify, and then finds all sorts of profound things to say, these modern minds then feel obliged to say that one cannot make head or tail of this For what does it mean to offer explanations about a universal principle by giving individual interpretations of the syllables of a word, such as soul and fur, that is quite alien to the modern mind? If, nevertheless, one continues to study Jakob Burma, one finds that he clothes what he wants to say in all kinds of alchemical formula. However, only when one penetrates to what comes to living expression as Jakob Burma's spirit in what he discovered, does one find that something is living there that is completely different to what we know today as scientific thinking, as thinking based on world conceptions of whatever kind. What lives in Jakob Burma's soul most closely resembles that which has been characterized in these lectures as the first stage leading to a higher spiritual life as the stage of imaginative knowledge. We have emphasized the fact that someone who rises from ordinary life in the sense world comes by way of a special development of his soul to the point where he perceives a new world of pictures, of imaginations. And it was emphasized, I would ask that you call to mind the way that this was described, that when a person has managed not only to form imaginations, but that pictures, imaginative conceptions, shoot up from the unknown depths of the soul life and he experiences a new world, he must, if he would ascend to new insights, make the firm resolve wholly to suppress this first glimmering of an imaginative world in the soul and to wait until it appears for a second time from a far more deeply lying world. The whole state of soul, the whole inner mood to which Jakob Burma gains access can best be compared with that which a person who attains supersensible knowledge experiences in his soul life. That is not to say that there is anything of what modern spiritual science proclaims as its methods to be found in Jakob Burma, but there is no justification for the belief that all this became manifest in him as though of its own accord. He himself once said that he had unremittingly striven for the spirits, for God's assistance, and that a radiant imaginative world had resulted from this ceaseless effort. So we cannot say that his imaginative knowledge was purely of a naive nature. We should rather say that there was something naive about the way that he took hold of the means whereby a person is led to the heights of imaginative cognition. It can be assumed that such an imaginative power was his by nature. Thus he arrived at imaginative knowledge by exactly the same paths, only more quickly, more as a matter of course, than one can arrive through such methods as are described in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? Thus Jacob Burma stands before us as someone with imaginative faculties of knowledge. 
but this imaginative faculty struggles with a primal force of nature to the surface, as though carried by a strong inner will. Thus we see in him this strong inner will which is unable to find full expression in outward deeds. His humble occupation prevents this, surrounding his soul like a flood, so that his soul immerses itself in this flood. And from this will we see mighty pictures being engendered through which he tries to solve the riddles of the world. With Jakob Burma it is not so much the various results that matter, but rather this mood and particular constitution of his soul. He feels that in his aspirations he is impelled toward something that has to do not with the ordinary cognizing human ego, but is connected with the forces that link the subconscious regions, the very depths of man's soul, with the entire cosmos, thus with what weaves and lives out there in nature. A person who has a serious yearning for knowledge indeed feels that in the process of cognition there is not only something rational, but something that he achieves for himself through suffering and pain and through the overcoming of suffering and pain. And when he tries to gain insight into nature and existence with the means generally available today, he notices that through such means he actually becomes ever more distant from nature and existence. But when we uncover the forces in our soul that otherwise reside in the subconscious, we feel that they are connected with nature and existence in a quite different, more intimate sense. In order to explain this, I should like to make reference to the following. It is a familiar and frequently reported fact that when an earthquake or some other elemental event is imminent, certain animals flee from the place of the earthquake, or at any rate become restless, so that they are like prophetic harbingers of what is to happen. One might say that the instinctive life of animals is more closely connected with what takes place out in nature than is the entirety of man's state of soul. But... In the depths of the human soul there lives something that is not the same as the instinct of animals, but is deeper than this animal instinct, and is also closely connected with the forces of nature. And in descending to the depths of his soul, Jacob Burma felt himself to be intimately involved with the forces of nature. But one thing stands out particularly. It has been emphasized that only when what appears as imaginations and then lights up again as if of its own accord, only then does this second imaginative world have any value. Now, it is highly instructive if we compare Jakob Burma's path with this. In 1600, he experiences a rebirth. He feels himself transported to a spiritual world, to a kingdom of joy. He then continues to live in sober simplicity, for ten years what he has experienced is as though submerged. It then appears for a third time in 1610. Did not the path that we have described as the right one manifest itself in Jakob Burma's soul as a natural phenomenon? It is this that draws Jakob Burma so closely toward what we have ourselves conceived as being the natural path into the supersensible world. If we take this into account, his experience will not seem as strange as it may appear to be at first sight. It will, of course, have no value for the objective knowledge of the skeptic 
if one deliberates at length about the combination of the syllables sul, S-U-L, and fur, P-H-U-R, or about such other things. But I ask you to recall what was said on a previous occasion about human speech, when it was explained that in the course of human evolution speech actually precedes abstract conceptual thinking, and that Jean-Paul is absolutely right when he emphasizes that the child learns to think through speech rather than developing speech through thinking. Speech is therefore of a more primal, more elemental nature than thinking. When we see how the whole of nature arises again in our thoughts, we feel how thought is separated from the realities of nature by a cosmic abyss. But when a sound bears a greater similarity to the sounds of nature, and language was, after all, originally composed of such sounds, when the sounds of speech are wrested from the human soul, something of the whole rulership of the world is working into the depths of the soul. And then a kind of echo of nature struggles toward liberation in an entirely different way than if something from the realm of thoughts is released as an echo. The soul of the present time no longer has any feeling for the affinity between speech and the sounds of nature. As modern souls, people struggle only gradually to feel that in all language there is something which directly resembles an echo of the impressions of the outer world. In a figure such as Jakob Burma, who draws deeper forces from his soul with elemental power, it is only natural that he is, in this respect, carried back, as it were, also in feeling, to that awareness regarding speech, which was once characteristic of humanity, and which the child still develops to a more or less unconscious degree. If we now extend what has just been said to the somewhat puzzling discussions concerning the combining of syllables into words, we can understand that this is a way of feeling through the sounds of the impression that nature makes upon the human soul, of how nature wants to create a language through sound itself. Precisely because Jakob Burma was closer to nature in his soul, he also lived more in speech than in thoughts. And his whole philosophy is more a matter of feeling, of sympathizing with what lives and weaves out in nature than some kind of abstract understanding of anything. If one really allows a thought of Jakob Burma's to exert its influence, one could say that one feels as though the relationship of the thought to what he observes is similar to the relationship of the sensation of taste that one has to the nature with which one feels in contact. This is how Jakob Burma feels the contact with nature. He feels inwardly what weaves and works outside in nature. He shares in the life of nature and in his characterizations of it, he does indeed transmit what he experiences, so that in his words one feels that what he has perceived continues to resound. To him, therefore, the words are also something that he especially feels to be the essence of the how in nature. So one does not need to ponder whether discussions regarding such matters as soul and fur mean anything particular for Jakob Burma, but one should try to relive how this soul makes its experience of the world into an experience of the soul and gives as its revelations what the soul is able to experience. 
People do not understand Yaakov Burma when they have the idea that he perceived thunder and lightning, clouds and their transformations, or the growth of grass, as a modern human being does. The pathway to understanding him lies through the knowledge that with the flashing lightning, with the rumbling thunder, with the constantly changing clouds, something is transformed for his soul life, with the result that something takes place in his soul which represents the solution of the riddle that confronts him. Thus what happens in the world becomes for Yaakov Burma a riddle belonging to his own experience. If we consider him in this way, we now understand how he was able to wrestle with a task that we also encounter elsewhere in his time and which has long occupied the minds of others, not least the greatest mind of more recent times. This same 16th century that saw the birth of Jakob Burma was the source of the riddle of Faust, who places man's adversary, who draws man's striving nature down to a base sensual or as Jakob Burma's age would have it, devilish realm, alongside the striving and struggling human individual. Goethe struggled constantly in a poetic context with the problem which places evil into the world context. Does it not have to be asked again and again how it can happen that something irregular and inappropriate is inserted by hostile forces into the harmony of the universe, into the wise guidance of the world. This question regarding the origin of evil lies in the riddle of Faust. It actually lies already in the book of Job, but it came to particular prominence in the 16th century. How was this question able to manifest itself to Jakob Burma? We need to take only a few words from title Dawn in the Ascendant, and we shall see at once that what is otherwise a world problem becomes for Jakob Burma initially an inner soul problem. He says something along these lines. When a sensible and thoughtful person appears anywhere in the world, the devil immediately meddles with his soul and seeks to drag him down into vulgarity, banality, and sensuality and to ensnare him in pride and conceit. Here we see at once that for Jakob Burma this is a soul problem that he seeks the power of evil that interferes with good soul forces in the soul itself. And the question arises for him, what does the soul have to do with soul forces that aspire toward evil? Thus the problem of evil, in the end, becomes for Jakob Burma an inner soul question. But because for him, in quotes, soul and, in quotes, world, correspond to one another, the soul at the same time expands into a world. And now what defines his particular impulse is that the question of evil develops into a quite different question, into the question of human and indeed of spiritual consciousness, of the whole nature, of the life of consciousness. It is difficult today with our current conceptions to gain insight into Jakob Berm's soul life and into the way that he related to world questions and their solutions. And one would not so easily be understood if one were to use Jakob Burma's words, because they no longer have currency in our time. Thus I shall try, wholly in the spirit of Jakob Burma, but with somewhat different words, to approach what he wanted to say about the question of evil, 
which for him becomes a question that concerns the whole nature of spiritual consciousness as a whole. Let us try to think how our consciousness works and what our consciousness would be like if we were not in a position to take hold of what we have experienced in our soul, in our consciousness, as thoughts imprinted in our memory. Let us try to think how different our consciousness would have to be if we did not have the capacity to draw forth from our memory what we experienced yesterday, the day before yesterday, or several years ago. The whole content of consciousness rests on the fact that we are able to remember past experience, and our consciousness does not go beyond the point in time to which our recollection extends. It was then that we began to conceive of ourselves as an ego, to have the connecting thread of our consciousness enabling us to establish ourselves in our life of soul. Upon what, therefore, does the whole nature of consciousness depend? Its basis is that we know that we are now experiencing something in consciousness. When we experience something, we are directly connected with this experience. In the moment when we experience something, we are none other than the experience that we are having. When someone imagines a red color, he is, in the moment when he visualizes this red color, united with the experience of it. When someone conceives of an ideal, he is in this moment at one with the ideal. Only afterward is he distinguished from his experience, whereas previously he was at one with it. Thus our consciousness is something that we have first experienced and then stored up as an objective reality in our inner soul life. Such a process of storing away makes our consciousness possible. We could not develop any consciousness if everything that we have experienced were immediately forgotten, removed from view. Our actual consciousness is awakened only when we confront our experience as a kind of counterpart, by placing ourselves over and against it. We can observe this with the simplest phenomena of our consciousness. Jacob Burma extends this experience, which every consciousness can have, in his clairvoyant perception of the whole world. He says, if a divine being in the world had only had the capacity to live in itself, but not to confront its experience as a counterpart, consciousness would never have become a reality, even in a divine being. But for the divine being, the counterpart is the world. Just as we place our conceptions over and against ourselves, and become conscious of ourselves through the object, so is the world the counterpart for the divine consciousness. And the divine consciousness has set forth from itself everything that surrounds us in order to become aware of itself. Just as we develop our consciousness only by representing our own experiences as a counterpart. For Jakob Burma this thought was not a theory but something that brought him satisfaction with regard to a question that was a matter of destiny for him, the great Faust question. He could now say to himself, if I carry myself back in thought to divine consciousness prior to the world, as it were, 
this divine consciousness could come to itself, become real consciousness, only by setting itself over and against the world, in order that it might become aware of itself through its counterpart. Thus everything that lives and weaves and is has arisen from the divine soul nature, from a will of this divine soul nature, which developed the desire, as will, to become aware of itself. And it now became clear to Jacob Burma that in the moment when the one-fold consciousness established the counterpart and wanted to become aware of itself, thus duplicated itself and, as it were, created the reflected image of itself, it created this mirror image in a multiplicity of individual members, just as the individual human soul does not simply reside in single limbs, but in limbs that have a certain independence, such as hands, feet, and head, and so on. One cannot approach Jacob Burma by seeing him as a pantheist. It is necessary to follow through this train of thought consistently, and thereby understand that he conceived of everything that appears before us as a counterpart of the Godhead. The nature of man's being is also an aspect of the counterpart of the Godhead, which the Godhead has set forth from itself in order thereby to become aware of itself. Jacob Burma expresses his viewpoint somewhat as follows. Human beings look up. They see the stars, the masses of clouds, the mountains and the plants, and often seek to presuppose the existence of another special region of the Godhead. But I tell you, you ignorant person, that you yourself form part of the counterpart of God. For how could you sense and become aware of something of the divinity in yourself if you had not flowed from this divine being? You derive from this divine being. It has placed you over and against itself and has as though given birth to you and you will be buried in it. And how could you be raised from the dead if an alien Godhead stood over and against you? How could you call yourself a child of God if you were not one with the substance and being of God? That Jacob Burma does not have some ordinary kind of pantheism in mind is made clear when he says, the outer world is not God. It will never in all eternity be called God, but a being in which God reveals himself. If one says that God is everything, God is heaven and earth and also the outer world, there is some truth in this, for everything has its origin from and in him. But what can I do with such talk, which is no religion? One cannot call him a pantheist. Just as the question concerning the essential nature of the world is not some kind of abstract pursuit for him, neither is the answer that he gives to it. Rather, is it an experience for him? He felt the conditions of his own consciousness and extended these to divine consciousness because it was clear to him that his capacity of consciousness is an echo of the actualities of the world. And in the answer to the question of the soul and the divine nature of the soul, he also finds an answer to the question concerning the origin of evil. This is something highly characteristic of Jacob Burma, which has aroused the admiration of some deep thinkers. 
Thus, for example, Schelling was significantly moved when he became aware of the way in which Jacob Bama approached the question of the significance of evil in the world. And other 19th century thinkers also admired the profundity of thought with which Jacob Burma tackled this question. It can be said of many people who have explored the question of the origin of evil that they have searched for its primal cause. What is characteristic of Jacob Burma is that he goes beyond that absolute point that many people think that it is possible to go. For where is one to go if one does not want to stop at this primal cause? Jacob Burma goes beyond the primal cause when he wants to solve the question of the significance of evil. He reaches to what he significantly calls not the primal cause or ground, but the groundless. And here we indeed encounter in Jacob Burma an experience of the human soul that one can admire to the highest degree if one has the requisite organ. To be sure, the ordinary soul, which has its roots in the modern world conception, will quite possibly not possess this organ. But one can have this organ which feels admiration when, in the case of Jakob Burma, the transition is made from the primal ground to the groundless. It is actually something like the, quote, egg of Columbus, close quote, something extremely simple. For in the moment when Jacob Burma had solved the world riddle for himself in the way that we have described, when it was clear to him that there is a relationship between God and the world, as there is between the soul and the limbs of the body, he was also able to say to himself, these are not his actual words, but in our endeavor to understand him more closely, we want to characterize the essence of what he meant, close parenthesis, when the world came into being as a counterpart of the Godhead, dividedness appeared in the counterpart, differences between the limbs, as we might say, a dividedness of the individual bodily members with respect to the single soul came to manifestation. Is not every individual bodily member good in relation to the functions of the soul? Can we not say that the right hand is good, the left hand is good, everything is good, insofar as it serves the functions of the soul? But, because of its relative independence, indeed precisely because of its inherent goodness, can the right hand not injure the left hand? Here we have, in contrast to what constitutes harmony, placed the independence of the bodily nature, that which needs to have no ground, in quotes, or cause, in quotes, we have placed this in the primal ground, which deed is the direct result of passing from the primal ground to the groundless. Just as we do not need to seek the cause of darkness in light, so do we not need to seek the cause of evil in good. But since for Jakob Burma the world is the counterpart of the Godhead, the possibility arises in this world of dividedness for individual limbs or members to work in opposition to one another, in that because for the purpose of the world, in order that the world might achieve its goal, they must have their independence. They must also develop this independence. Thus for Jakob Burma the root cause of evil lies not in what people give by way of an explanation, 
but in what arises as groundlessness, without there being any need to explain it. This arises of itself as a counterpart of the good, and now evil, what is inappropriate and harmful, becomes for Jakob Burma itself a counterpart in the world to good, just as we become aware of ourselves through contact with an object. We move along in space, we do not think of ourselves, but we begin to do so as soon as, for example, we bump our head on a window. We become aware of ourselves through the counterpart, through the object. Just as Jakob Burma places consciousness over and against the counterpart, just as he experiences himself through the counterpart, the good, the appropriate, the advantageous and useful becomes aware of itself for him through the fact that it has to preserve itself from the harmful and inappropriate. It becomes aware of itself in that evil, in quotes, becomes the counterpart of good, in a similar way to the objects that are experienced through collision with the outer world. Thus Jakob Burma sees in good the power which assimilates its counterpart, just as a person constantly assimilates in his memory what he has himself set forth from his consciousness. Thus we find a constant absorption of evil, and hence an enriching of good with evil. And, as darkness relates to light, in that light shines into the darkness and thereby becomes visible for the first time, the good only becomes an effective influence by working into evil and by relating to evil as does light to darkness. Just as light is differentiated through darkness into various colors and could not appear as light if it did not encounter darkness, so can good fulfill its function in the world only by experiencing itself through its counterpart, through evil. This is how Jakob Burma views the world. He sees good having influence by virtue of the fact that it finds itself confronted by evil, but that it takes evil into its own domain, as it were, absorbs it. Thus a pre-earthly event is visualized by Jakob Burma in such a way that he says to himself, the Godhead once placed other spiritual beings over and against itself. These were, like our present nature at a later stage, a counterpart of the Godhead. Thus these beings were already a counterpart of the Godhead, whereby the Godhead achieved consciousness of itself. But they related to the Godhead as limbs that turn against their own body. By this means, for Jakob Burma, the being of Lucifer came into existence. What is Lucifer for him? He is the being who, once the counterpart has been created, made use of the dividedness, the manifoldness, in order to rebel against his Creator as an independent counterpart. Thus in the forces of the world that are differentiated from and struggle against one another, Jakob Burma finds what has to be, what contributes to evolution as a whole by being absorbed in the evolutionary process. In the same way he also visualizes that all deeds of the opponent of the gods are in order that the deeds of the Godhead itself may come to fulfillment all the more strongly through the counterpart, absorbed by the Godhead, and that the self-fulfillment of the Godhead will become all the more glorious 
through the forces which the opponent develops. Jakob Burma pursues to the deepest level the thought that extends the experiencing of consciousness to the cosmic experience of the origin and primal state of evil. And he expresses it, and this is not something that he has given as a theoretical solution to the world riddle, but what he has experienced by means of a simple formula. No yes without a no. For the yes must first experience itself through its counterpart, through the no. No yes without a no is the simple formula into which Yakur Brahma brought the whole problem of evil. It is not a theoretical formula, but in this philosophy there lies something like a most primal, most elemental experience. For to know that there is no yes without a no, that evil is absorbed by good and contributes to the evolution of the world, may yet be nothing. But it is something else to be a struggling soul, a soul that experiences pain and suffering, temptations and seductions, and to say to oneself, all this must be, and in spite of this I can, out of my living, and not theoretical, philosophical words, furnish myself with the certainty and the consolation and the hope that the best in me will find the possibility of overcoming what is only the counterpart, the no, through the primordial impulse, through the yes. And no matter how much I become entangled in evil, and no matter how small the ray of light may be that extends over it, I can and may hope for liberation so that the good in me and not the evil will be victorious. When such a philosophy develops into a certainty of redemption, it is something that is indeed linked with the personality, but at the same time has a universal human significance. If one allows this to work upon one's soul, one will gladly go from this struggling soul that ponders the cold abstractions of yes and no in order to acquire from this the warmest soul content and the warmest soul experiences. One will gladly progress from this soul that struggles for confidence in its world conception to the solitary man in Gerlitz who had no opportunity to found a school for he had to spend the time that people otherwise devote to intellectual matters to making shoes. He had to carve out the time needed for his many books. One is glad to go to this person whose books reveal how he struggled with language because his outward education was so limited, but whose teachings nevertheless became widespread and gained notoriety after his death. To this man who sat on his cobbler's bench and had only a few friends with whom he shared his thoughts. It is true that he had friends to whom he wrote letters, but their number was only small. Thus one perceives him in his solitude and has the feeling that there is in this some kind of necessary connection, just as one can only think of Giordano Bruno as journeying through the world, moving from one country to another in order to impart something about the world by trumpeting it forth, just as one feels with him who involves himself with a multiplicity of phenomena that this journeying belonged to this world conception. So does one feel in the other case that this solitary shoemaker experienced something that could, as it were, only be experienced 
in a solitary dialogue with the spirits of existence, in this solitary seership that we characterized at the outset. If we feel in this way, we begin to have a clearer sense of what a person needs in order to bring his thoughts to bear on solving the riddles of the world, that the greatest things that can be experienced in the world are independent of place and time, that they are linked only with the human soul's meditative power, and that the soul can undertake the most extensive journeys into regions of the spirit always and everywhere. Then these significant words that characterize Jakob Burma's world conception sound a chord within us and stir our thoughts. Quote, Those who time as eternity and eternity as time decree, they indeed are freed from the strife and hostile deed. Quote. This does not characterize his world conception in a theoretical sense, but it characterizes what his world conception really came to be through the fact that he was so special a human being. For we have been able to emphasize that through his whole being he was more intimately connected with nature than most other people are, that he experienced the weaving and working of nature in the experiences of his own soul. This leads us to sense a certain necessity in the way that Jakob Burma's friends characterized him. They portrayed him in a favorable light. For let us bear in mind that when there was in the East, in the Orient, a widely diffused and wonderfully detailed knowledge, whose wisdom we admire when we become familiar with it, we still find on Central European soil the very simplest intellectual culture. We find that in all the souls of Central Europe there still lives something like an intimate connection of the forces in the depths of the soul with the forces of nature and nature beings, and that people threw twigs on the ground and from the runes that they formed, they saw and endeavored to solve all kinds of riddles. These people were rune decipherers, and from everything that speaks from the souls of the people in the forests of ancient Germania, of what lives in nature, of what rustles through the trees or lives mysteriously in human souls themselves, we feel something of what was alive in Jakob Burma's soul. We then begin to understand something about Jakob Burma, which we would otherwise find very difficult to comprehend today. It is no arbitrary conjecture if we compare the picture of the decipherer of runes, who solves all sorts of riddles from the twigs which have been strewn on the ground, and seeks to come to a knowledge of the revelations of the Godhead itself, with the way that, for example, Jakob Burma depicts the syllables sul and fur in a rune-like way, out of his relationship with a feeling for language, and from this wants to solve world riddles. He then appears to us as a last living vestige from the forests of Germania, and we understand why his friends gave him the name Philosophus Teutonicus. This includes, however, his significance for the times to come. We look upon the way that he struggled with the most stirring issue that can preoccupy the human soul, that in this struggle he arrived at peace, and that his last words, quote, Now... I am going to paradise, close quote, were the seal of soul consistency or soul practice. It is this that led him to peace in his soul. 
a breath of faith, lives in all his books, and from this point of view Jakob Burma can have significance for us and for all times. This philosophus Teutonicus will always set the tone for what he can really mean to the soul that familiarizes itself with him as regards the practical implications of a philosophy. His opponents sometimes made a strange impression, beginning from 1684 when the first more forceful refutation of Jakob Burma by Kaloff appeared, until our time when in the past century there has also been a critical appraisal of Jakob Burma written by a Leipzig scholar, Dr. Harls. Harls wants to show, somewhat curiously, that Jakob Burma merely raked up old alchemical writings and then says that after often spending the day tormenting himself by presenting Jakob Burma in this way, he was glad when, in the evening, after this toiling away with Jakob Burma, he could approach Matthias Claudius in order to find recuperation and edification in his words. And he also wishes for his readers that they do not allow themselves to be captivated by the glittering and glistening formulations of Jakob Burma, but that they, likewise, take refuge in the simple and naive Matthias Claudius, whose gift to the soul is such that it does not need to seek its salvation in being elevated to the loftiest heights of spiritual life. It may be the case that this Dr. Harls, the opponent of Jakob Burma, had to take refuge in Matthias Claudius in order to escape from the glittering, high-flown formulations of Jakob Burma, and that in Claudius he could find a peace that contrasted with his experience of studying Jakob Burma. However, this gives a strange impression for someone who knows that Matthias Claudius himself, after he had achieved what Dr. Harls appreciated in him, for his part took refuge in someone who was not only familiar with Jakob Burma, but even translated him, in St. Martin, who was a faithful pupil of Jakob Burma. So it is very good if one not only knows from whom Dr. Harls, Jakob Burma's opponent, sought edification, but if one also knows from whom Matthias Claudius in turn sought his edification. But the worldview of Jakob Burma is one that has the capacity to lead beyond contradictions, if one does not simply stop there. The whole nature of the lectures that have been given here has shown that where the world conception that is being represented here is concerned, we should not be focused solely on a particular phenomenon, but that we should be trying to understand what can be understood of the spiritual world directly out of our own time. There is no doubt that Jakob Burma remains a significant personality, a star of the first magnitude in the spiritual firmament of mankind. And yet no one will be preoccupied solely with him. Thus the descriptions that have been given in our time through spiritual science are not presented from Jakob Burma's standpoint, but from that of our own time. And in the next lecture it will be shown what an entirely modern figure has to say. But Jakob Burma becomes even more interesting when we call to mind his spirit nature, standing upright in simplicity and solitude and taking flight with his soul into the highest region of clairvoyance. And when we find how this spirit nature could spread peace over Jakob Burma's soul, such as can be felt by all who approach him with understanding, or at least try to understand him, hence intellectually based characterizations 
will also not come close to Yako Burma. But only those that endeavor to sense what a person like Yako Burma felt, what streamed forth from him, in, for example, the four significant lines that have been cited. For the words with which I try to characterize Yako Burma acquire their significance if those present feel that they were not said in order to give rise to a theory or a theoretical characterization of him, but so that, as we directly contemplate this figure of Yako Burma, something streams forth from him, and streams forth so much the more warmly and intensely the more we come to know him, which can summarize what has been said in words that epitomize his peace, his deep serenity, quote, Those who time as eternity and eternity as time decree, they indeed are freed from strife and hostile deed. Close quote. The end of Lecture 7.